On today's show, I'm going to be talking with Tommy Joyner of Pep Rally. They have a new single out called South Street, but that is just the tip of the iceberg because South Street refers to South Street in Philadelphia and all the music and arts and culture going on there. And I'm expecting Tommy to be the ambassador for that culture and to fill us in. So welcome to the show, Tommy. Hey, Kelly. How's it going? I am great. And, you know, we're going to touch upon the song and so much more. But <clears throat> what I'm really intrigued about someone from Seattle, Washington, you know, in the Northwest, mm -hmm. I've got this, you know, vision of the East Coast of forbidden culture that we can't even comprehend out here. <laughs> so, you know, All in your, yeah. And in your bio, I think you said when you first moved to Philadelphia, Every night you're hanging out on the South Street and just soaking up all that culture. That is true. That is true. And uh, and everything that you've ever heard about the the East Coast or the Northeast is all true. <laughs> I just want to put that out there. <laughs> I like that. Well, you know, New York a few years ago kind of cleaned it up and gentrified Times Square and you know, took out all those great old theaters and grindhouse. But I'm wondering, does you know, South Street still strike a balance of, yeah, a little gentrification, but does it still keep some of that local flavor alive? Uh, no, it does not even attempt to strike a balance. It's all, um, there's no gentrification at all. It's it's a madhouse on South Street all the time. Nice. And, uh, it's, it's, it's something akin to Bourbon Street, I would think. I, I've, I've never been to New Orleans, but from what I'm told, it's like Bourbon Street and that it's, uh, it's, it's this sort of nonstop party. Um, I mean, in the morning, it's quiet. You people, you see people walking their dogs and, and you know, looking um, uh, sort of fresh and peppy, maybe going for a jog. But by midday, South Street has kind of come to life and it's all South Streety again. Well, you've built up a little empire there. You know, outside of the band, you have... Nope. Well, two two things called Milk Boy, you know, a venue that's like a restaurant, a bar, a live mm -hmm. music venue. And then there's Milk Boy, the studio, mm -hmm. where you have like some, you know, major people when they come through town, they say, hey, Nicki Minaj needs to lay down some tracks. Hey, let's call up Milk Boy and, you know, schedule some time. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, you know, you've been doing this for <clears throat> so long. Like when you walk down South Street, are you like just the king? Does everyone know Tommy Joyner? No, no. Yeah, I've worked all these years behind the glass. I've worked for people, other people on their records. And uh, uh, and I'm now for the first time working, putting out my own music um, after a long time. It's kind of been a long time coming. But uh, uh, I've worked on other people's records so much that, you know, people know the start. People know the stars I work with, but not uh, me so much. I mean, in Philadelphia, yes, I, I, I say hi to a lot of people, of course. Nice. Well, so in, in researching you, I found out Milk Boy the Studio, founded in 1994, when you're doing punk, hip-hop. Sounds like maybe a little more underground, and then you've established yourself to the point where you know, Dave Matthews will drop in, James Taylor, Miley Cyrus. So when did you kind of realize you were, you were becoming known and it's like, wow, you know, we've got famous people coming here. That's, yeah, that's, that's, that was something that it more, it happened after the fact. I mean, when I started Milk Boy, I just had a cassette four track recorder and a mic. And over the years it became, you know, I slowly just, 
I, I lived broke forever and, and uh, just put money back. And when I'd get money, I'd buy something new. I'd buy another microphone. And I remember when I got a reverb unit, that was a really big deal. And then I got an 8-track. I got a, a reel-to-reel 8-track. And then I got um, digital. I got into Pro Tools and, and digital recording. And then I got a 24-track open reel deck. And it was just kind of so slowly the studio geared itself out and when I opened the studio, I, I I didn't open it. I didn't open a studio. I just had I, I set up my equipment in a room so I could record my band, and uh, and then I made and we made a tape. And then somebody else heard that tape and wanted me to make a tape for them too. And so you know I charged them like sixty dollars to make their tape. And slowly over the years, um, it became a, my living. It became my living. It became all I do. And uh, and later over time, we we moved out of the first location that we were in on North, up on North Fifth Street in Albany in Philly. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, moved to, a, built a studio that was a little nicer and, and, and then got, I got, I connected with a partner, my partner, Jamie Lokoff, and he's a composer. He does a lot of music for, for film and television. And which I didn't do, I just recorded bands, you know, hip hop artists and bands. And, um, uh, and so, we didn't do exactly the same thing. It seemed like a good fit. And we built a nicer studio and then we built a nicer studio. And then people like James, like pe- the people that you mentioned started coming to the studio. And that was, and then I realized like, wow, I, I guess I'm really like more of a studio person than an artist. Um, and I never, cause I didn't really ever give that up. I just wasn't really working on my own stuff for a long time. Uh, well, you know, people of that stature, they can obviously pick any studio they want. What is it? that attracted them to your studio um me you know (laughs) of course in the end it does come down to the the people behind it it all it's just because i'm so good looking and kind (laughs) (laughs) because you didn't have like a 48 track you know uh tape setup so it's not you know everyone is so hung up on equipment but wouldn't you rather have a really good engineer than million dollar equipment well, yes, because only because I know better. But I don't know if everybody else says that. So, but yeah, you want a really great engineer, you do, and uh, uh, and that's and people were coming to you know coming here because of kind of because this they could count on it sounding good, and uh, and when you're a busy professional, you really don't want to fuck around like that. You want it to sound good, and and know that it's going to sound like you you have it in your head. Um, and I think that's something that I was always really good at is getting the sound that people had in their head. They would describe it. And I, and I, I'm a musician. I'm a listener. I listen. That's what musicians do. You know, we do two things. We listen and we play. And so that's what, and that's what, certainly what I do. And, and so I would listen and then I would play and have some fun until the, till the sound that they heard in their head, they're like, that's it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And get excited. And then we were off. Um, and so that's what, uh, and that kind of thing. I suppose that did build some clientele, but honestly, I didn't realize that it was a business for years, that it was, um, even though it was how I was making money, it was how I was paying my rent. I just didn't, um, I didn't really think of it as a business for a long time, really until we, my partner, Jamie and I, we wanted to expand our footprint in the Philly music scene and, and um, get to know more musicians. And we opened up a coffee shop. We started uh, there was a, a, a location pretty near our studio, like a block away across a parking lot and we uh, that was for rent and it was affordable. And so we opened up this coffee shop and it had a stage. So we started doing open mic and then I started booking 
acts to play in the in the place and and um uh and had some really cool acts play there over the years like lake street dive played played there twice as a coffee shop a hundred standing a hundred seater coffee shop or a hundred it fit a hundred people when they were standing and um uh and uh uh, uh grayson hill played and and jeffrey Gaines played and, and you know some artists that were um they were pretty cool, you know, like um, that, that are still doing, you know, making records and, and making good records came and played. And um, uh, and that I started to think of it as a bit. I started to think of it differently. I got let's say I just got I, I got used to looking at spreadsheets, which I never really knew about before. <laughs> it turns out they're handy. Well, it sounds like you, you were sort of the CBGB of Philadelphia. That's really high praise. I play, although I played at CBGB's, uh, I had a, a band that we finally, we called up Louise Parnas all the time and just to try to get a gig at CB's, try to get a gig, try to get a gig. And we finally got one on a Saturday. I, we, we did the thing where we played on, uh, I think Wednesday night or Tuesday night was their like tryout night. And this is when I, you know, when I first moved up to the Northeast and was living in New York. And, um, uh, we, then played on maybe a Wednesday and then maybe a Thursday. And we finally got a Saturday night and we were so excited, so thrilled. And, um, and we come to, comes time to the gig and we realized that it's on Memorial day weekend. And there's, ah. there's two, there's two weekends in New York city where you can fire a shotgun down third Avenue and not hit a soul. And it's Memorial day and labor day. The city empties out. <laughs> and, uh, Oh my goodness. I mean, New York is packed and busy all the time, but these two holiday weekends, it actually gets a little quiet in downtown, in uh, in Manhattan, and uh, and so. But anyway, that's my Saturday night at CBGB. Did anyone show up for your show? Yeah, yeah. We we had our friends. Our friends stayed in town and 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 came to the show, and and then uh, you know, and then you know, fucked off the next day to the beach like they did, like they should have been, and uh, did whatever. But and then there were some tourists in town. There were some some nice Swedish people there that. Uh, didn't know what the holiday schedule in America was, and they were happy to see a good rock band at CBGB's that night. Nice. Well, here's the deal about club owners. And and we found this out during COVID. They take so much risk and responsibility just to open and to stay open, you know, and all these small clubs that were devastated during COVID, and a lot of them didn't reopen. Mm -hmm. But But you put... A lot of your own money in but it's really your time your sweat your month to month anxiety of how are we going to keep this place going and i think a lot of people don't realize you know we all love these venues that feature up-and-coming bands but it takes a special driving force that that's risking a lot kelly i'm tearing up at hearing your description <laughs> see I, I can see that you you've been through the blood sweat and tears mm-hmm Mm-hmm. That's true, and it's and, and certainly a lot of that's taken for granted. I, you know, I took Hilly for granted. Speaking of CBGBs again, you know, I took him for granted, you know, and, until until he closed, until he was gone, and then I was like, oh no! <laughs> now you go to where CBGBs was, and it's a Patagonia store. And uh, wow, yeah, and uh, uh, you, you know, you, you you definitely these things are missed, these touchstones, because you make such such a a connection with the place and the people, the bartender that goes cranky and and the sound guy won't talk to you and all that stuff. You miss them when they're gone. <laughs> you really do. Well, when you first started Milk Boy, the venue, you know, the mm-hmm. music venue, mm-hmm. 
when did you feel like okay we're not hand to mouth we're, we're you know we can coast by a little you know we don't feel desperate every month when rent time comes around and you know building our audience was it in the first year was it five years i mean when did you feel like it wasn't totally touch and go year number seven year number seven mm-hmm yep that's when i that's when i finally felt like i could pull my shoulders down from around my ears and relax a little bit you know it looked like okay we're gonna be open again tomorrow and i could count on that it took a it took a long time but you know i think like i said i mean i lived broke forever and and i didn't i didn't know i didn't care you know about myself i just kind of cared about keeping the business going and now that i thought of it as a business i i, I thought about that you know and the responsibility that you have we started to have employees and mm-hmm. and you know I've, I've, there's there's um you know i've got 50 people working for me now and uh and that's a you feel you feel that you feel and that and that that drives me to keep pushing ahead what's the reality of an artist who still wants to play music write music be a creator but they think well gosh i know a lot about music i can help other musicians i'm just gonna do this little side thing and then that blows up and it becomes you know your big thing you know, what happens to your creative side? Do you kind of compartmentalize and think, well, I'll put that on the back burner until 2022? <laughs> or do you kind of do a little on the side? Because I think people realize sometimes it becomes an all or nothing. And that's not a bad thing because some people realize, wow, I'm actually really good at the business side. I'm good at leading. I'll artists. tell you, it, it, that's a, I mean, that's a really good question, Kelly, but it, I'll tell you, it eats you up. It eats your creativity. You you kind of lose it, and um, you, you, like putting it on the back burner is probably the the safe safe way to say it. But I'm I feel lucky, and um, that uh, I'm able to kind of explore again. I feel really happy about that that I'm able to play again. You know, miss playing, and uh, you know that's because that's that's where all the fun is. That we play. We we're, we're you know we we frolic. We play, and and I'm really happy to do that again. Um, so this time around, mm-hmm. after seeing a lot of people play live and then see a lot of people record in your studio, seeing mm-hmm. the best and the worst, how do you take all that and apply it to yourself and think, okay, this time around, I'm going to incorporate in my music all the things I wish these other bands put into their stuff? Hmm. That That's... I don't know that that's what I'm doing. I've learned... I've certainly learned a lot of lessons, musically speaking, creatively speaking you know i've watched some 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 of my heroes create music and um that's been and even had a hand in assisting them to do that uh so know really well what it took to go into that music um and uh it's all inspiration all the best are not they're not necessarily using technology the technology is sort of invisible it's about their their creativity it's about their inspiration and their work ethic and so that that stuff i've learned um uh, modern records um record the records that we're making now are are uh have evolved to kind of 
to, to you know they go through stages there's like there's a wave to things there's everybody's using synthesizers then everybody's using real instruments again and it, that's that that trend has kind of gone back and forth and i'm seeing more real instrumentation happening now even with with pretty well-known hip-hop producers they'll they'll come into the studio and do a day or two where they're they're just recording a band them them because they're all very talented musicians um and uh and their friends or bandmates uh they'll come in and jam and they'll use that that the result of that to make their sample palette for the next year or whatever for their for the records they're going to work on for the next little bit um because everybody's always looking for that new sound and uh but with pep rally i wanted to make a record that was inspired you know i wanted to make a record that inspired me that that was inspired me the sounds that i hear are inspiring the next sound that I lay down. They're, they're that process of, of starting to make music and crafting, and you think it's going to go one way, and then it doesn't. It goes a different way. Um, it's something that yeah that I've learned to be open to, and learn to react quickly to when it happens, so that I can move on to the next sound. And at the end of the day, the song that I started isn't. I have iterate. I, I have demo a demo of South Street. I've got a couple of demos of South Street because I never could quite figure it out where I wanted. You know, it starts out just an acoustic guitar where I wanted to sort of get the song arrangement down. And then I started to think about what I wanted to sound like. And and it sounds this kind of way that I'm not so settled on. It's not there yet. It, it's not doesn't feel inspired yet. And then I try something else and then it doesn't feel inspired yet. Then I try something else and I get inspired and I write the bridge and 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 then finish the song in the day. You know, it's that kind of thing. Like once you're you're open, your mind is open to that universal language that's kind of coming down to you from the stars and when you find it you react quickly and then you know it's finished it's done you're ready to release that song or you're ready to to at least say that song is mixed and send it off to put it into that pipeline to get released when i first heard your band name pep rally i thought is this going to be ironic you know is this going to be like a throwback to you know some gleeful you know, kind of um, idyllic time that never existed. You know, we think of high schools in the 50s and 60s mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. the movie Grease, that era. But mm-hmm. when I heard South Street, I thought, no, this is just an appreciation and just embracing what used to be just really fun, innocent pop rock, but with, with an edge. But But that it's like saying it's okay to just do something straightforward. Not everything has to be ironic. Or you don't have to subvert it and you know kind of have a you know act like you're above that or more clever you know than these other bands it just seems like a very um modern uh appreciation where i think it would have been tempting for you to add a lot of irony to it (laughs) yeah maybe i mean sometimes i can get pretty down but uh (laughs) but uh or, or cynical you know i can get pretty cynical but but the yeah, pep rally is the sound of to to uh, to me to, to and to and to the musicians that I I love to work with. To us, it's the sound of of an alien species that landed on Earth and is in just love is in love with humans. Can't believe that humans exist. These all these humans are so great because you know how dark and cold it is up there. It sucks up there. Down here, it is amazing. Mm-hmm. And that, and there's a lot of joy there, and what you know. So that's sort of the the vibe of Pep Rally. Well, looking at the videos to both, well, South Street, the the current, but the one before that, turn the radio up. 
mm-hmm. had a more like overt cheerleader, you know, in it. And mm-hmm. I was thinking, I think a lot of young people don't realize now, because I, I can't even imagine what it's like to be in a high school now, especially post COVID, but mm-hmm. that there used to be, you know, not just a cheerleading squad, but a pep rally and a march, you know, or, or a pep squad and a marching band. Yeah. And there, you know, there was this whole team of people leading <clears throat> the cheers at football games and, you know, the marching bands and parades and all that. And I kind of like that. And it is nostalgic. And I wonder, do you share any of that nostalgia? I don't know if I share the nostalgia for for that, but I do think that a pep rally is a thing that is a uh, is it you know is a group of people coming together to get psyched about an event, and that's there's something really cool about that, and in a lot of ways that's a that's a that's a concert, that's a show, and um, and you know as much as we I think we all kind of dislike people sometimes we all sort of like people and. Uh, and when you have people that are together to kind of do a shared experience around us, around a theme, around the same thing, everybody's psyched to go see this show tonight. Everybody wants to go see Pep Rally tonight. Everybody wants to go to the Pep Rally tonight and cheer on the football game. Everybody wants to go to a baseball game. Um, and those kind of things are, are the shared human experiences that are joyful, are really important to us as people. And, and coming out of COVID, I'm... I feel like I'm really going on a philosophical thing here, but coming out of COVID where we couldn't have anything to do with people, it was a word that just kept, or two words that kept ringing in my head, pep rally, pep rally, pep rally. And, uh, and my, uh, co- my co-writer, Matt Vantine, um, he and I were talking about this, about pep rally and, 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 a, and what a fun kind of concept and a joyful concept. Um, and the, the name just sort of stuck in that way. And, the music has has followed that. I think the music has has is sounding joyful. The music does sound mm-hmm. joyful, and um, even though South Street is about uh, about jail, drugs, and and uh, uh, and you know hard to- it's a bunch of hard concepts. It's a really joyful song, <laughs> and uh, uh, and that kind of comes out. I think because we're called Pep Rally. So it's kind of sneaky on the surface. It's this fun, glossy experience, but then you slide in these kind of David Lynch storyline into it. I think that's pretty accurate. That would and a very, very high compliment. Thank you, Kelly. I like that. Well, you see, when I was in high school, I was in marching band, and you know, like people don't realize, you know, it's almost like you're a full-time employee when you do these extracurricular activities. And <laughs> I remember the pep rally because when we weren't on the field marching, we were up in the <clears> stands, <throat> you know, every now and then playing tequila and, you know, all these fun songs. And mm-hmm. so to me, it's it's almost like people just take for granted that these bands exist. You know, they just think they magically are just there in the back playing music on cue. Mm-hmm. And I just like the whole idea of, you know, back up in the stadium in the stands, the little pep band. I remember we kind of had our own little subversiveness. I mean, looking back, it was pretty squeaky clean. Oh but... yeah, yeah. But I, but I, you but guys I remember are the, you guys are the weirdos. I mean, like you're, you're the just, weirdos. You're having the you're having more fun than people even understand. But the thing I was <clears> knew <throat> back then was I'd much rather experience all that with our little group in the back. You know, the band. I said, you know, how could we go to something like this without being in a band? You know, I never would have gone. 
unless it was being in the pep band. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. And you right. get you get you get lucky to have those musical experience. Music leads you places. I mean, when you were young, what was your early band experience? Um, I was in the jazz band. I was not in the pep band, but I was in the jazz band in high school. And uh, because I played guitar, I didn't play brass. Um, and so, but they had a jazz band with a, there was a couple of people with electric instruments and I was one of them. And I was a terrible music student. I, uh, um, I took a lot of classical guitar lessons, um, but, uh, and that didn't really translate over to jazz um, because the, the, you know, there's so many use all the notes in jazz and, and that's and and jazz band in high school meant meant playing jazz standards too, which I really like. I like big band music. I love that stuff. Um, but uh, but that really translated more into me starting a rock band with my buddy Kieran, who was also who played in the jazz band on the on the electric bass, and then you know we started playing in a band, and uh, and that became my musical experience. And so my scholastic musical experience was pretty pretty small. Wow, I was always envious of the people in the jazz band. I I thought it was the cool one for sure. <laughs> it was. <laughs> I thought, wow, they gonna have electric guitars. Yeah, it was fun. I mean, it seemed like fun. But isn't it funny how experiences like that in high school still carry through in adulthood, and you really do learn all the basics of performing. Ah, uh, all of them. Uh, I I remember being told that I play too loud. And nobody ever told me that before. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's like, well, then you realize it's not that you were playing too loud. You just needed a louder venue. Yeah, maybe. I need everybody else to get an amplifier. You just needed to open a punk rock club of your own. Right. So I have to go back to that, um, that you founded the Milk Boy Studio in 1994. Mm-hmm. That's such a crucial year when I when I saw that year, it just brings me back, you know, which is kind of like that's the year grunge died, really. Yeah, I guess so. I think uh, it, it got on the radio in a really big way and it was the way. And yeah, yeah, it had that kind of big, big thing from 89 to 94, especially 91 to 94 Nirvana. Yeah. But 94, the year that Kurt Cobain died. Mm. And yeah. it just yeah, seems Kurt like 94. Right. 94 yeah that end of the era but also the rise of hole so but the, but this is not a kurt cobain courtney love conspiracy theory podcast but <laughs> i love you kelly <laughs> <laughs> see it's that seattle influence but in 1994 what did it feel like to you like i love the fact that grunge still gave a nod to punk rock but pure scaled down punk seemed like it was going extinct so did you feel like you were you were kind of keeping that alive i don't i don't really that's that's a tough question because i, I was in i was i was kind of back and forth between new york and philly during that time and new york music was really getting hot i mean the strokes were 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 uh sort of nascent at that time. And, and um, it wasn't long before the yeah, yeah, yes came about, like it was like 96. And so there was a lot of really cool rock music happening in New York and Philly at that time. Um, and a lot of the stuff out of New York um, made it out into the mainstream. And, you know, we all know it and heard it. Um, but I was also doing a lot of hip hop music at the same time. And so that was, 
um, punk never felt the punk I was doing at the time never felt that vital. The hip hop music and uh, um, and some of the kind of like mid tempo rock music did it did feel really vital at that time. It felt fresh. Um, the punk music in the '90s always it, it very much felt like a, a retread, you know. Um, uh, but it was obviously fun to record to work on it's fun they're fun records to make they're not that complicated i didn't have it you know with, with my very limited kind of gear set and and knowledge of, of making records at the time I, I could do it um so i felt like um you know i could i could do those records and feel like i'm not being a jerk um you know it felt authentic uh but but the you know the record itself felt authentic but yeah the music was, was but but yeah, a lot of the music of the street, what we call pop music, has changed over the years because it's just popular music, right? Uh, and so punk is probably similar. What we call punk music is not so, it's not so much about the clash anymore and a slightly reggae influenced um, guitar, you know, guitar music, guitar rock. It's it, punk music is kind of different. It got much much harder. It got much tougher sounding and and probably became a little more. Uh, rhythmically inclined to like the drummers in punk rock got very good so in the 90s was there a sound coming out of philadelphia that was just uniquely philadelphia um yes and it was not rock and roll it was the roots mm -hmm. and that that um kind of uh rootsy hip-hop there was live instrument hip hop music was was like the that was a Philadelphia sound. And uh, Philly is really blessed. We have loads and loads of good players. Um, they still teach music in schools. And uh, it's a really it's a great multicultural city and that nobody you don't get judged by your race or your religion. You really get judged by the contents of your record collection. And you form these musical uh, groups, you know, like your, your your musical community, and they can be. A, it's a very multicultural little musical community that all likes whatever you guys are into, and uh, um, and so Philly has uh, uh, as there's always there's always crossover stuff going on in Philly, and and it produces a lot of really good players that make up the majority of musicians and touring acts in the pop world. I mean, there are so many Philly musicians uh, in the band. Um, and if you know if you turn on any kind of late night show and see the band somebody in that band is probably from philly i think seattle's a little like that too um in that there's a lot of good players from seattle and you see somebody from seattle in a lot of bands you know and uh um uh, uh but so like in that way philly is is a bit of a mutant you know philly is just mutates its sound to lock into the sound that's going on and it, you know i'm sure it's influenced and by and also influences mm -hmm. so milk boy the music venue the restaurant bar cafe live music mm. so when people play there and and i'm going to name drop again a little bit like you've had miley cyrus lana del rey james taylor sounds like james did a double he used the recording studio and also played no no just the recording studio the big just the recording yeah the big artists are all recording studio the the, the venue itself um okay. we got a liquor license and moved downtown it's no longer a coffee shop and it's in a different location okay. 
But so, the so the pretty small. So the names I listed are more studio. Like, who would be the biggest act that has played the um, the bar, the bar venue? Fishbone. Fishbones. So, d- describe like when, when they come to something like that. What do you think their expectations are? Kind of like, well, the pressure's off a little bit. We can be more experimental. We want to soak up the local vibe. You know, what do you think's going through their minds? Not sure. Fishbone are a weird group of people, man. I mean, I saw them at Lollapalooza one year, and I mean, they they headlined, and now they're playing 200 SROs. <laughs> like, but that's what we do. We send the catch artists on the way up and on the way back down. So when Catfish and the Bottlemen, if you're familiar with them, played, they played to 60 people, and then and then the next time they played, they it sold out, and then the next time they played, they played the 2,000 seat place in philly you know and so it's that kind of thing where where um people's expectations are always pretty right-sized to the venue they understand they're playing a venue that holds 200 people and um and it's a it's a bar and it's a fun gig it's a standing room only gig and it'll be we tend to to you know maybe the headliner goes on a little bit later like goes on at 10 30 or 11 o'clock and um and that's that's the kind of uh gig they're gonna have and i think people sort of get that um the studio like the the studio the the big stars that come to the studio none of those people would are are playing the the venue the one the names you mentioned because they're all too big for that um but there's quite a few mid-tier artists who who come to the studio and you know locals and uh uh, and any nationals? No, mostly like from the locals, and you know, Philly's got a good local community of of, of fairly well drawing artists um, who play the bar as well. Uh, they seem to get it as well, and and it's an it's a good place. It's run by musicians. It's run by uh, well, it's run by hospitality professionals, but it's owned by musicians, and and uh, and we have a, a green room when we do we treat the band. You know, we, they order off the menu. They don't just get when they get fed. They get fed well, and. Um, and people tend to really like playing there because of that, you know, they, because they, they know they're going to get a good meal out of it and they know they're going to have a good show. See, I'm just picturing like Sting showing up to do a surprise concert. Like he wants to do an all acoustic set, try out some new material, you know, where, where no one knows he's coming. Wouldn't you just love to see something like that there? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, the struts played, they did like an underplay like that. Um, uh, X ambassadors did an underplay like that. Um, we've done a couple of things like that, that where, where there are, but it's not sting. And it doesn't have to be sting. There's, you know, sometimes it's even more fun when, you know, the cult, you know, people who aren't so superstar. Well, just tell me geography-wise. So you said the the concert venue moved. So was it originally like just everything in one building, the concert venue and the it's recording ne- studio? No, or? it's never been in the same building. Um, Milk Boy, the studio was in one building, and, and when we opened the coffee shop, it was about a block away. And then we got a liquor license and moved downtown. That was about year six, if you're doing the math on that year seven i started to feel okay like i could breathe um uh the we moved downtown and then that same year we moved the studio downtown to um a place that's about maybe half a mile from the bar 
but they're not okay. they're not in the same building. So they're both in Center City, Philadelphia. One's at 11th and Chestnut, and then the uh, the studio is at 7th and Callow Hill. Do people ever get them mixed up? All the time. Oh no! So if you got like a studio time booked and you go to the bar instead, are, do people come in late a lot? Uh, no, but they're definitely like they call and they're like, "I'm at Milk Boy," <laughs> and it's at 11th and Chestnut. Where's the Where's the studio in this building? I'm like, you're at the wrong building. So wh where did you get this name, Milk Boy? Oh man, if I if I'd known that it was going to be a business, I never would have chosen this name, Milk Boy. But when I first built the studio, the first studio, we took over uh, a had what had been a musical a musical instrument repair shop. And somebody had gotten their drum repaired and left it there and never picked it up. And on this drum, they pasted a picture of a kid drinking a glass of milk. And so it was just there. And uh, and we were like, oh, I'll, I'll call it Milk Boy, you know? And that was, so the studio became Milk Boy. And and all these years later, uh, it's still called Milk Boy. And I, sometimes when I'm saying that to people on the phone, like when I call, like, you know, somebody who doesn't know Milk Boy, they they don't understand what the why those two words are together. They think I'm speaking French or something. They don't really, they don't get it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, boy. it was a total. It was a luck of the draw, kind of talis, talismanic thing, you know, that that was uh, in the space, and we named it Milk Boy, I guess, for good luck. And it's been we've been lucky. I think we've been lucky. So you're inspired by this boy drinking milk. Yeah. You name your band Pep Rally. Could you be any more squeaky clean? <laughs> it does sound really squeaky clean. It's so funny. Because to know me, that's I'm not squeaky clean. <laughs> well, let's go back to the 90s. So when you were first recording, people were putting stuff out on cassettes still. Yes. And, and, and one thing I really miss is like that indie, like almost like the four-track EP cassette whether it's punk or hip hop or whatever, do you miss cassettes? Yeah, I do. I don't miss, I don't miss um, taking a pencil and sticking it through there and, re and winding the tape back into itself because my tape player jammed and, and that kind of thing. And, uh, but uh, yeah, the, there is something really, um, you know, that tactile, that tactile thing uh, is, is really important or was at the time it was kind of part of music you know that it wasn't just what we listened to it was how we listened that was a thing you could because you could hand somebody a cassette and it was like they were you were giving somebody a secret and then they listened to that cassette and then they knew the secret too and so you too knew the secret and nobody else knew the secret because they didn't have the cassette yet and uh, <laughs> that well, kind of uh, at the at your studio did you also do duplication or did you have to send out to like a local tape duplication place? Send out to the local tape duplication place. We weren't that business savvy or whatever, you know, that was just seemed like too, I mean, oh my God, that took too much machinery. That was so cool. Like, you know, a bank of 50 cassette tape players, you know, the master one where you play it and then yeah. 50 recording at the same time. Yeah. Do you kind of miss that stuff? In a way, um, uh, as a recording engineer, I don't. But as a uh, as a consumer, I do. I do. Uh, you know, walking into the mastering house and seeing that that room off right, basically right when you walk in, there'd be a room off to the side where somebody is 
is doing that. They're they're flipping the tape over and flipping all 50 of those cassettes over that they're recording to while they're making paper labels to paste on the cassettes. Um, more more, more than likely an unpaid intern who wants to get into the music industry. Maybe, maybe, right? <laughs> well, when you uh, kind of time things, like can you remember there in town when the last tape duplication place closed? <clears throat> No, I don't. <laughs> I was not clued into that. I mean, because well, because that's a, like so, like such a you know you think of these uh, landmark times. To me, that's very. Yeah, I, I'm guessing some of those places maybe made it up until the mid 2000s. Maybe possibly, yeah. Yeah, there's there's um you know there's the companies the big company around here is Disc Makers, and I think they're a national operation. I know you're in there in the back of every magazine. Oh yeah. Um, and they may still have, I think you can still get cassettes duplicated and they're, they're here. They're in, they're, uh, in New Jersey, right across the bridge. I mean, they're basically in Philadelphia. Um, so you might even still be able to get cassettes duplicated there. I know you can still get, get vinyls cut there and I don't think you ever couldn't. Nice. Well, yeah. let's, let's talk about shake audio post, which is another, uh, arm of your empire. Yeah. Right, well, a renamed uh, Milk Boy Audio Post, but we do a lot of, we do a lot of, uh, sound for movies too. It's um, um, in fact, um, Jamie and I, my partner and I, we we've we've made a movie and we're making another one right now, um, with him directing. And uh, you know, so the, so this movie you made was that Slow Learners. That's right. Yeah, Slow Learners, which is on Netflix. Was I think it's uh, available on uh, Prime. You can get it on Prime still, and um, it was on Netflix for two years. Uh, That's pretty amazing. It was amazing. It was amazing that that we made a movie. We never made a movie. We made a movie. Um, we had a really good cast. The script was strong, and and a, a lot of really good cast got involved. And once you kind of get one person involved turns out more than more you know good people get involved and we had a lot of people from saturday night live uh cecily Stroud, wow. bobby moynihan and and uh uh reed scott from veep was in it and, and um uh, but the leads um uh were you know every, every everybody everybody just kind of like dropped into place all at the right time we made a movie we got into Tribeca and we took it up to Tribeca and a, uh, we hired a sales agent to represent us. And I'm making those little air quotations with my fingers, but uh, somebody saw it and wanted to buy it. And um, uh, and so it wound up being bought by um, uh, by AMC and and, um, and well, for, well, to go to Tribeca, that must have felt like a very triumphant return to New York. Yeah, it did. <laughs> you yeah. you came back to the big city on called, your terms. <laughs> I called all my friends. I called. I was like, "Hey, you gonna come see my movie?" <laughs> yeah. No, felt, I mean that's a big okay. festival. I mean, isn't isn't that like Robert De Niro? That was his. That's his. He started the festival. Yeah, I never met Sir Robert, but uh, I. Uh, um, uh, but yeah, it's 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 a it's one of the big film festivals in the United States, and that's where 
uh, you know, business gets done. People buy like they bought slow learners. Um, so, it, you know, having the first the first movie that we did be that kind of success was really uh, special, unique. And, and we again, like, you know, feel lucky. The artistic output and the fun has to be there. But but, but with all that. Um, I'm not a fool. I know that there's some, I feel, you know, I'm not, I, I don't, I don't take it for granted. I, I feel lucky. I feel really lucky. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like you then mix the sound for the movie at the milk boy audio post. So for people who are, are not as in the know, yeah. tell the difference between a recording studio and like, you know, a post audio production studio. Well, one has a television set and, and the other probably doesn't <laughs> no i mean like when you're mixing to picture i'm looking at a screen all the time i don't know if you can see my camera but i mean this i'm in my studio oh yeah and uh um and so i have a, a screen in front of me that that has the the movie on it and i'm working against that picture all the time and i'm working in a way that is uh fitting sound i have the dialogue on and i know where that needs to be and I'm fitting sounds around that. Um, so your dialogue level really kind of stays the same and all the sounds, all the music, all the, the sound effects cues that go along with that get mixed in so that so to enhance the dialogue and not drown out the dialogue, uh, drown out the dialogue and not and not uh, obscure any of the the, set, the natural sound of the, the picture. Um, and, uh, and in music, I'm just trying to make everything really big and full sounding and if i can get everything louder i'm doing that um and uh, and so it's a different it's a really different head you know you get into a different head to do that kind of to do that kind of um work so in like well audio posts so maybe if it's an album like you're mastering it for for the the final pressing or for the the cd or mm -hmm. is it if you're doing a movie you're, you're like what are the particulars like when you're doing audio for a movie is it similar to what you would do for a record um no it's really different I, i'm i'm always working to stereo when i'm working um for and this is this might sound subtle but it's vast it, i'm always working to stereo when i'm working on music uh, even if the mix later will become immersive, you know, become like Dolby Atmos or something. I'm still always working to stereo. Whereas with with mixed to picture, I'm almost never working to stereo. If I'm 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 putting sounds I'm putting sounds in all five speakers, um, and that is a very different kind of thing. Now, technically, I'm still using the same gear. I'm still using Pro Tools. I'm still using the uh, I'm still using the, the same tools that I would use to make a record. Um, so there's a lot of crossover there, but it's just a different, you, you put yourself in a different head and uh, you kind of tune your ears a little differently to do it. Um, do you, do you do any Foley work? Quite a bit. Do you, do you have any cool funky things like two wooden blocks you bounce together when you want to like make the sound of some footsteps? Yeah. You, you generally, you, you hybrid sounds. Yeah. Like, cause you, because everything that looks, you have it on the picture and you want it to look like, what it is, but you also want it to look like, you know, you want to, if somebody takes a footstep and you want that footstep to sound like a footstep, you can record yourself stepping. But if you want it to sound really interesting, you, you often layer sounds underneath to make it sound like a footstep that's 
never heard, you've never quite heard a footstep in this way. If it's on camera and it's like a focus, you really want to heighten the sound. So if they're, mm-hmm. if it's nighttime and somebody sort of drifts off into their head for a minute and there's crickets going, all of a sudden you might add in the sound of a, a factory going in there as well. You know, like there's machinery going and things that start to, you, you mix these, blend these sounds in to make the sound of these crickets sound unreal, to sound so hyper real that, yeah, you, you mix in sounds. I've heard that for slasher horror films, when they want to simulate the sound of someone being stabbed, they, they record someone jabbing a big knife into a watermelon. Yeah, vegetable abuse, we call it. <laughs> Have you done a lot of stabbing Foley effects? <laughs> Yeah, the, uh, that we have Foley pits and and you know Foley, Foley is a kind of an art and, and we en- we enjoy doing it. You know, use ourselves as Foley walkers is what that's called. If you're the person making the sound to picture, but you look at the picture and you make the sound to picture and record it, so it's all in sync with the picture. So, like, how many stabbing scenes did you have in Slow Learners? None. That was a what. Run. It's a romantic comedy and uh, <laughs> a dialogue-driven romantic comedy. <laughs> oh, the, my goodness. The sound effects work was very light for slow learners. <laughs> oh, but my I recommend goodness. it's a really funny, it's a really good, funny movie. And it's available on, if you have Amazon, uh, anybody's listening, I'd really encourage you to look it up. It's a good, funny movie, indie movie that was made on a shoestring and kind of got over. You know, we made it and and unbelievably, we sold it, you know. Excellent. Well, going to wrap up in a bit. have a few more uh, nosy questions for you. But okay. before then, have to make sure, where should people find out about you? And I, and I know you wear so many hats, but you know, I especially want people to see your South Street video and turn the radio up, learn about the band, but also for your, your Milk Boy entities. Well, um, thanks, Kelly. I appreciate that. For South Street, or for all things Pep Rally, you start it start at youtube just type in pep rally into youtube or pep rally music into youtube and uh and same thing with spotify look at pep rally music and um apple music and and uh prime music wherever you wherever you do your streaming uh and for milkboy milkboy.tv is the kind of home page for all the various entities and if you want to buy a t-shirt you can do that there too and um uh uh, that's that's where you kind of like that's the starting and possibly ending place to find out everything about Pep Rally and Milk Boy and Tommy Joyner that, that you could you could need. If someone buys a T-shirt, will you sign it with a black sharpie? Uh, if that is the request, I absolutely will. I'll try to do it in a place that's a, as obnoxious as I can. <laughs> Warning: I'm going to do it in the front. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, when we first started talking, I was, you know, relaying my research of South Street in Philadelphia, the neighborhood, yeah. and which really builds itself as this, you know, melting pot of arts and music and culture. Mm-hmm. And and whenever I hear like alternative culture now, you know, I'm always thinking, okay, is it really going to be this funky space with stuff I can't see anywhere else? Which to me usually means... It's individual shop owners that have created some funky shop that they're probably working it, you know, night and day and keeping it alive, whether it's, you know, a vintage clothing store Mm -hmm. or or just a really funky original coffee shop or something. Mm -hmm. So for you, 
what do you think symbolizes that the best? Like if, if this, you know, guy from Seattle came to South Street, what what are the shops you would recommend to think, wow, this is something you would never see in Seattle? Uh, well, I mean, it's Seattle. You know, I think you're pretty blessed with some culture there. But the, uh, uh, you know, you'd go to Crash Bam. You'd go to Milk Boy the Bar. We have we opened up a little outpost on 4th and South there. And um, uh, you might come to open mic night on Monday night or something. And, and uh, you go to Crash Bam Boom. Uh, around the corner, which does a lot of the kind of the original punk rock, iconic punk rock store on on South Street, which I'm told that all the kids in the 70s went down to South Street and and uh, and hung there and bought their belt, their studded belts and stuff there. And you can still go there and hang there and buy your studded belts and um, get some really cool, unique stuff because a lot of it is hand screened here in Philly. Um, Blue Bond Guitars is around the corner on 4th right off of South Street. It's a one a fantastic guitar store. They they do vintage instruments and they also do repairs. And uh, and if you're looking for like an obtuse Strymon pedal or something like that, they might have it. They'll like you know they'll likely have it. And uh, uh, and then the TLA venue is on is which is a, an 1100 seater is on South Street. Um, all the cool acts that come through Philly play there at that venue. Um, no jobs down the corner where i saw nirvana play in 1991 uh oh wow uh, is 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 on south street um uh up the block uh you got tattooed moms which is you know really a great bar kind of an icon to me an iconic bar uh of that sort of philly greaser style which still exists you know there's still like that kind of like 50s pompadour tattoo kind of thing biker jacket vibe going on and it happens you know that's the kids there and um if that's fun and cool uh and uh and then further up south street all the way up on 16th bob and barbara's is, is like one of the original kind of jazz bars in philly and it's still just like the the hippest place and you can get a shot and a beer for four bucks and uh, uh that's a great it's a great hang as well morning noon and night Mm -hmm. So has the mayor ever like presented to you the key to South Street? Uh, no, 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 no. Um, they haven't. But uh, maybe after this podcast, they will. Shouldn't they just like make you honorary mayor of South Street for the day? If if they did, I would accept that. But I think there's probably some other people who are maybe more deserving even than me. So, do they have any used record stores down there? Oh yeah, Repo Records on is on South Street. I mean, and also Jim, Jim Steaks right across from uh, the Milk Boy Bar on South is uh, uh, an iconic Philly cheesesteak place. And yeah, and Re but like Repo Records, like I just mentioned, uh, mm -hmm. Six South, great place to 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 get new and used vinyl. Now you can get new vinyl that's all beautiful, mm -hmm. 180 gram vinyl, and and uh, they've got it all. But they've also got uh, killer use section so i was nice. digging i was digging around in there the other day and, and uh and found an old you know like a, a vintage cure record that that you know found kiss me kiss me that was it was in perfect shape and um and it wasn't necessarily cheap but it was a beautiful copy of the record of the original pressing and um uh and it was what 16 bucks or something i was, I was, wow. just, I was super happy so i really admire people who open used record stores 
Because, you know, they're dicey at best. And to keep that mm-hmm. going, as, as you know, you know what it's like to keep these businesses. And again, it's usually, you know, one guy working seven days a week, keeping it going. <laughs> but but that's usually the type you go in. And without Google, you ask a question and he'll know every record ever made. Everything. Yeah, exactly. They are walking encyclopedias of recorded music. That's right. And you just have to know if you go into a store like that, as tempting as it is to talk someone's ear off for three hours straight. <laughs> they they probably busy. <laughs> it's like, you know, come up for air, go and actually, you know, pick a few records out and buy them. Because my theory is, you know, if you spend more than 30 minutes talking to some shop owner's ear off, you're, you're bound to buy something before you leave that store. You are. You must. You just must. You know, <laughs> not only are you obligated just for, you know, like bending his ear for that long, his or her ear, you also are, are, uh, are, you should. I mean, it's just like you just got so much, you want to, you want to, you know, there, you just learn so much cool stuff. You're like, okay, I'm, I now know what I'm going to get. Exactly. I mean, it's almost like you're getting this free consultation. <laughs> what to buy? I need a consultation. What, what to buy? I'm also impressed if a neighborhood can still support a used bookstore. Do you have any of those? Uh, We do. Uh, You know, I got to tell you, that's not my uh, oeuvre. Okay. Well, I'm sure you'll check. Here's the thing. Now that you ask, I I, kind of want to know, but I know that we do. And we also have, like, really great secondhand shops. And uh, and there's a place in town... um, that does like architectural salvage. And so you can go find, you know, like a, an, a, a, an SO sign, a gas station sign. You can probably find the gas pumps and stuff. And, the, you know, it does that kind of thing. That's really, really so cool. It's called Jinx. And nice. very well, you know, well worth walking into and poking around and seeing what they got there because they'll also have knickknacks. They, they might, you know, you can buy some, buy, you can get somebody's old record collection at this place and you can also get their entire barn. You know, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's just, a lot of cool stuff. A lot of cool stuff. Philly's got a lot of great history. That's and it's turning over. Um, uh, you know, it's renewed or renewing. So there's a lot of old things that are coming down and new things going up. And when that happens, it creates stuff. And sometimes mm-hmm. people really like stuff. I got you know. I got to tell you, I'm trying to not get into stuff. Um, I'm really trying to have less stuff and be a little more portable. But uh, but you know, I I I, I know the 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 compulsion to have stuff is strong in a lot of people and and if you want if you like stuff there's a lot you can get a lot of stuff in philly it's tough because you know i like the idea of minimalism but if if too many of us go minimal uh, what happens to these shopkeepers you know we have to have that healthy balance of not owning too much stuff but still buying stuff It's 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 a thorny question there isn't it kelly it's a, you know, we got to keep that economy going. Okay, tell me if you remember this. This is what I miss the most, and I know you'll <laughs> remember this. Just the classic old magazine store, which mm. could be a brick-and-mortar store, but remember the outdoor ones or maybe a little shack off the sidewalk where the vendor's inside and outside is all the stuff displayed. And it'd be like, you know, newspapers from all over the country. and But, you know, you're exactly. looking for... Still exist, and especially yeah. music. If you're looking for, like, if your local store doesn't have like Cream magazine or yeah, they'll have it, it and a pack of gum 
Uh, right. Yeah. So is that still a thing there? I mean, do you have That's, a good one in South Street? There's that. They're they're uh, not on South. Um, they're more like in Center City. Uh, you know, not too far away. Like South Street is still Center City technically, but uh, maybe on um, South. Uh, if you keep go go a little further to Walnut Street, I know there's one at Eleventh. Um, uh, there's another one on Market and and Eleventh uh, and and um, and yeah. So like the you get they have the paper, they have the ma they have magazines, they've got. They have chewing gum and and uh, and and bags of chips and stuff too, and the soda. But uh, um, yeah, the the magazine selection has has really dropped off, though, hasn't it? There's not it many, has not so many being printed. Well, and there's a danger to that because you know if you're like always say in a studio digitally editing, mm -hmm. just say and you're looking at a screen. Isn't there just something where you want to get away from that with a magazine and just, you know, tuck, tuck into a little corner of a coffee shop and just, you know, leisurely look through a magazine? You know, that that sounds like um, that sounds nice when you say it. But no, when I have when I have time, when I'm when I'm not working on somebody else's music, I, I've been picking been picking up a guitar. And that's yeah. been that's my world. And uh, um and I've been really enjoying that, which is kind of sort of analogous to what you're saying, because it's an analog device, you know, like you put down the the computer and you pick up, a, you know, a magazine to read or, you know, you're you're a wordy person, right? You're a wordsmith and and probably a writer as well as a, you know, uh, a podcaster and um, you know, you're a blogger as well. And and me, I'm a musician, so I'll pick up a, an acoustic guitar. Um, or I'll sit down at a keyboard, a piano, and and noodle around on that. And that's, I think, exactly what you're talking about. See, in the 80s and 90s, it was cool to find, like, a, a music magazine from England. So yep. you could read about it first before it hit America. Reading it in was, it was great. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, New I, Music I, Express. I subscribe and I subscribe to uh, uh, for, for American music. I subscribe to CMJ and and uh, uh, and got the magazine. And and speaking of magazines, did you ever get? Um, uh, oh, shoot. Um, Vice magazine. Did you get Vice magazine when it was a magazine? I, yeah, I remember Vice. Yeah, because they covered a lot of different things. Best thing in the world. It was so hilarious. Do's and don'ts were like one of the best one of the, the, the funniest things ever. They did, uh, they did record reviews and and porno reviews. It was like e with equal educated, you know, uh, uh, kind of a perspective. On, <laughs> it was just hysterical. And, and that covered they covered all the vices. They covered vices, music and porn. <laughs> yeah, well, you know the one I never read because I, I was kind of you know squeaky clean milk boy ish. A little mm -hmm. bit, but I was always, you know, there were certain record stores. I don't know if you had them out there, but they'd always like have a little head shop in the corner. Do you remember? <laughs> are you old enough to remember those record stores? I do remember them. Yeah. And, and it, was, it was usually those stores that would also carry High Times Magazine. High Times Magazine, butt of the month. Oh, my God. See, you do know this. You're <laughs> you're ruining my squeaky clean milk boy image of you. Um, if we had, we, we won't, we, I know we only have an hour, but if we had two hours, it, we, you, <laughs> it would be destroyed. It'd be shattered. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the funny part about all that is, you know, we're talking about alternative culture and whatnot. Maybe it's just being younger, but, 
you know, it felt like there was a little danger to the music and, you know, just walking into the record store with the head shop and the psychedelia and all that. Yeah. It, wasn't the there was a danger to the music. It wasn't just the content of the music. It was where you had to go to buy it. Yeah, right. Yes. <laughs> do, you, right. do you kind of miss that now that you're old and jaded? Uh, well, I mean, I uh, no, I, I love having the history of recorded music at my fingertips. I can't lie. I love it. <laughs> Or I should say older and jaded, because I'm sure you're, <laughs> you're younger than me, so I, I shouldn't call you old. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a man of your advanced years would probably prefer to have a store, right? <laughs> you see, don't you find that that's the way, you know, if, you, if you're not seeing people face to face, you can always deduce their age by their musical references. You certainly can. And when I bring up Led Zeppelin, people are like, hey, you're a little older than I thought you were. <laughs> Well, what kills me is when I mention the Beatles and someone doesn't know who they are. That's un that's impossible. Isn't that just crazy? That's happening. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess I'm spoiled because I live in a musical world, but uh, uh, I I have not had that happen to me, no matter what the age of the person, you know, the person I'm speaking to. Or, or it's like when you say, gosh, don't you miss back in the 70s when all these songs had really great saxophone solos? <laughs> and nobody misses that. Nobody, but they don't know. I do. I, I love a good saxophone solo. Yeah, I mean, what would Huey, where would Huey Lewis be without a great saxophone solo? Uh, I mean, and every song had one, like from 1975 to 1985, Magic every song. Dick, yeah, Magic Dick wouldn't have a job, wouldn't have had a job if he, if there were no saxophone solos. Oh, my God. Even like mediocre songs, they were always elevated by a sax solo. <laughs> Did you play sax in the in the pet band? No, but here's the deal. Ah. Talking about your jazz band again, I played clarinet. Okay. And, I, and that's that was the only time I regretted thinking, why don't I play saxophone? Then I could get into the jazz band. Uh, they didn't take clarinet in the jazz band? No, only sax. That was the only read that was a instrument. Short -sided, yeah, that was just a short-sighted musical director. There. I, I know. What, you know, what happened to the, the roots of Benny Goodman? You know, jazz, <laughs> real jazz. Uh, re real jazz, that's right. Oh, my God. Okay, so I, I want to give you the last word here, Tommy. We've covered so much ground because you're such a multifaceted person, but now's your chance to, you know, con convey what's important to you. And, you know, I know you're promoting South Street, but, you know, that's just the tip of the iceberg with what you have going on. I really feel like, you know, you are an ambassador for what's going on in your community there. So I just want to kind of wrap up with now a couple decades into your career and what you're doing there in philadelphia mm -hmm. uh you know what what's important to you now in music and just in building your community um i am i think the community building sort of happens by itself I, you know I, being involved in music i meet musicians and and musicians no two look alike you know uh it's a broad group of people and that um sort of takes care of itself i think you know we reach across as musicians we're always reaching across the aisle really for approval like do you like this do you like this sound and uh, uh and that leads us to to reach out a lot and so but for me personally i'm i'm you know on this artistic journey right now i'm on this artistic kind of like uh, discovery where i really am trying to to 
to convey what an alien species would be like or you know an alien civilization would be like if they landed on earth and what they saw and i think that what they what they see is something that's really beautiful they think humans are beautiful and they can't believe how lucky we all are to know each other and have other humans to be with because we're so interesting and um that is sort of beyond my my little my you know my small community in the city but then and out into a larger you know a larger sphere like where i really feel like the that the earth could use a little bit more connectedness um in a positive way and uh and that's what's that's really where i'm at musically i'm i'm really trying to I'm putting myself in that space and writing the song from that space and the record is going to come out in the fall the whole the full length and it'll contain a lot more of that sort of uh, that sort of good um you know joyful music i think music is a joyful noise and and i'm a playful person i am a musician i like to play and and it'll be music from that perspective that is going to be a lot of fun and uh and we'll get we'll hit the road at some point sometime in the fall and probably do or winter and uh and probably be getting to your town and i hope that um everybody comes out and sees pep rally for the show so now i'm picturing some really good uh retro outer space alien costuming could happen could happen and I know we'll put on a good show. There will be smoke and there will be mirrors and there will be lights <laughs> and, uh, and there will be excellent musicianship and great music to, to kind of join hands over. Do you remember in, in the seventies when ELO had like a whole spaceship drop down onto the stage? Oh, that's what that is. That's really the vision I have for Pepperly. So can you do that? Can you do that? Like on, on a budget? <laughs> don't know i intend to find out <laughs> well hey i've been talking with tommy joiner of pep rally the current single is south street and the neighborhood as well is south street where he's got two really established businesses that kind of define the community one is milk boy the bar restaurant and concert venue the other is milk boy the studio but if you go to any of those um, and you bring a black Sharpie with you, Tommy will probably sign anything or any part of your body that you want. So here I'm making promises for you. No, I appreciate I, I, you sharing not, this. Yeah, you're not, uh, you're not, you're not, you're, you're not, you're not writing checks that, that I won't cash. <laughs> I'll well, do no. Well, all I can say is if I go to the East Coast, I will, no matter what state I am in, I'm going to make a little detour down to Pennsylvania and Philadelphia and, and really check out this. Sounds like a very magical neighborhood. You must. You absolutely must. And I look forward to meeting you and hosting you at that time.